0: The unity is submarine, so said the late great Caribbean poet Kamau Brathwaite. So let's dive deep. I'm your host, Tawli Goff, and you're listening to my submarine podcast, Get Free. I am a writer and a PhDJ, that is, a professor and a DJ, and I teach literature and history at Cornell University in classes on the global histories that emerge out of imperialism and unfreedom. This show is about getting free, freedom as a verb, freedom as an ongoing practice of discovering your yes, by embracing sensorial ways of producing knowledge. Listening, tasting, feeling, touching, submarine being. Beneath the water, the unity is submarine. And so let's go on a speculative deep dive with my guests, who are theorists, intellectuals, artists, and designers, as we discuss the global entanglements of colonialism. Today we are joined by special guest,
1: Andrea Chung. Uh, my name is Andrea Chung. I am a visual artist currently living in San Diego. My background is that my father is from Jamaica and my mother's from Trinidad. Um, And I make work um, that is invested in process and materiality, um, specifically things that are related to island nations, such as the Caribbean um, and um, Mauritius, after having spent some time there. So I critique colonialism and how it's impacted um, the land, the people and how it's impacted us psychologically as well as physically. I'm a huge supporter of supporting us because I think that, you know, the Caribbean community is quite small in comparison to um, everything else here. So I think it's important that we all support each other. And then you're Chinese-Caribbean, so it's like, yes, I don't have to explain anything anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Because,
0: I mean, I've heard, like, podcasts that you've been on before. And just I'm sure like well-meaning radio hosts um, who just don't know how to talk about race or different than their
1: own. So, yeah, it's so weird. I'm like, it's not complicated. Like somebody clearly married or had sex with somebody that was Asian. And I actually told somebody that once I was like, she was like, how did you get your last name? And I was like, well, my parents fucked. And here I am. Cause it was like, what a cross ass question to ask me. So, exactly. give you a cross yeah. answer. <laughs> yeah, I
0: feel, I mean, having a Chinese first name, I think, comes with different ideas of what people expect. Mm-hmm. But I can imagine having a Chinese last name, people just don't know what to do. No, they
1: really don't. They don't know what box to put me in. So, I'm just... <laughs> You know, I, I get real. I, like, depending on how you ask the question, that's mm-hmm. pretty much the answer you're going to get. Like, if you ask me in a really dumb way, I'm going to give you a dumb, dumb answer. Yeah, to make you understand what you just asked me. So I'm like, read a book. It's not that complicated.
0: Yeah, a lot. Something I used to get all the time, not as much anymore. It's like, what are you?
1: Oh and yeah, I get that too. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it really depends on how people ask the question.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: So so one thing that I'm asking guests to do is to tell me what their yes is. And this is something that I ask students because oftentimes I'll begin a semester with reading Audre Lorde's Uses of the Erotic. Mm -hmm. And basically, the idea of the yes is the thing that you just do that makes your whole body feel yes. So what
1: is... Your yes. Currently sleeping. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I think as a parent, you're always tired. (laughs) There's no rest, there's not enough rest. Um, You could sleep 10 hours, and I guarantee you, you wake up and you're still tired. (laughs) So that's definitely my yes right now.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I really love that answer because I feel there may be more to it, you know, in terms of thinking about why we're tired when we're tired, especially in this current moment of the pandemic? And yeah, could you speak to more about why sleep feels like? Yes.
1: You know, it's interesting. Um, I find myself more tired now than ever before. And I'm I'm still very busy, which is also very strange to me. Um, but I'm definitely not nearly as busy as I was prior to this. Um, I was preparing for a lot of shows and Armory, But there is something that is mentally exhausting about having to worry so much and the stress and the unknown of what's going to happen, particularly with having a a small child and um, having to entertain them and explain things to them that you can't even quite wrap your head around. So I think, um, you know, before my schedule was that I got up every morning at 630, Mm -hmm and got him up for school got him dressed dropped him off came home and either went to the gym or started doing work or doing something for the house and you know i would go to bed at maybe like 11 and um i would be okay now i find myself getting up at like 9 30 10 in the morning going to sleep at like 10 and i'm still drained and exhausted and i think that um The quarantine has become so emotionally draining to everybody. Um, I don't think that people really realize how much stress can affect the body. And I think that it's a huge reason why I'm I'm constantly tired. Um, I don't know. Sleep is kind of like a way to sort of escape what's happening right now. Um, You're in a different place when you're asleep. But I feel like as soon as you wake up, it's sort of like Groundhog Day over and over and over again. I find myself doing the same things, (laughs) you know, I get up in the morning and he's trying to like get me to play with him, And I'm like, Hey, I need a minute, um, making breakfast. And, you know, it's just so routine in a weird way, but we're trapped in the house. So it's, it's, it's exhausting. I can't let him go out and run around the way that he needs to. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. Sleep has become um, the thing that I need the most now, but um, at the same time, I feel like I, I'm no amount of sleep can really get rid of the stress. So it's it's like a weird sort of kind of catch twenty two.
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel there must be so many people who what you're saying resonates with because. I definitely thought about Groundhog's Day. <laughs> as Everyone kind of- has yeah. said that. Like, yeah, that it's. I don't know how many days we're into it. If it's 150 or whatever it is, but it's just like I don't even. I wake up and I don't even know what day it is. It's like, what does time even mean right now?
1: It, it's funny um, that my son is the same way. He has to ask me what day it is, and I really just base my schedule on my workout schedule because I do hit with a few people, and we only we work out Monday through Friday. So that's how I know what day it is. But aside from that, every day is it's it's kind of the same. It just it's weird. Like time went incredibly slow the first two weeks, and now I feel like the day goes by so quickly that I don't feel like I get enough done in the day. Which right. I'm, what is there really to do? <laughs> and clean your house. I'm like, what. <laughs> I mean, for
0: you as an artist, I do wonder then how that, how you feel that that impacts your work and your philosophy about how you do work, because I've heard this quotation and I need to remember who said it, but it's something really poetic. Like I have lost a lot of sleep to dreams.
1: Oh, that's interesting.
0: Yeah. Does that conjure anything for you in terms of the work of art and how sleep plays a role whether that's to do with dreaming or
1: not um I don't know I mean um it was very hard to work the first couple of months which is even that in and of itself is a weird thing to say because I cannot believe it's been as long as it has been um we pulled him out of school early before before everything shut down here we had pulled him out So we started the quarantine maybe a week earlier than, than everything else here in California. And it, I just, I couldn't work. I just felt like, what is the point of me doing this? You know, at first I was like, Oh, I have all this time I can do so much. And I can, you know, this is a, um, I had planned to make this a year where I didn't work as much so that I could be in the studio because I'd been working so much and wasn't able to really make the things that I wanted to make. And, then it was just like, what is the point of working at this point? Like, it's not helping anybody. It's not, it's not a, you know, a cure for the virus. So that was a struggle. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, like, I knew I had a deadline, and deadlines is, are what really helped me um, to, to, like, really motivate and light a fire under my ass. And then I managed to, like, pump out some work and get things done. But I feel like this time has not allowed me. The opportunity to dream i think mm. my my dreams are um you know my dreams are more like survival mechanisms <laughs> like how do um, we how do we survive this um i've had a lot of dreams about my my family like i have a dad that doesn't speak with me so like i've had dreams about um about him a lot like he hasn't called to see if we we're okay which has been really, like, heartbreaking and, and very hard to deal with. Um, so, like, I've dreamt about him a, quite a few times, actually, and just sort of, like, our tumultuous relationship. So that – I don't think that I've had the time to, like, dream in a way that has been um, fruitful or relaxing. It's it's more like – you know, when you have, like, a really good-ass dream? Like, one time I had a dream that I just Elba was trying – to holler at me. And I was like, yo, I don't want to leave this dream right now. (laughs) (laughs) But I haven't had one of those dreams in a long time. Everything is like, Oh, my dad's not talking to me right now. My, my heart's breaking. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, they haven't been, um, they haven't been anything that's like made the, the work or my practice grow. It's more sort of being I guess in some ways replaying a lot of things that are already going on in my life that like haven't been resolved.
0: Yeah. Thank you for sharing that because it is kind of a strange moment in terms of intimacy, family, and who you see. Yeah. And maybe there are people who you wouldn't see anyway, even if it wasn't quarantine and that's difficult.
1: Very, it's very Without. difficult. Yeah. Another Chinese Caribbean artist. Um, she's actually Chinese Jamaican. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jody Lin Ki Chow.
0: Oh, you know, she was the one who first told me about your work.
1: Jody and I, um, we have that in common as well—that our fathers yeah. don't speak to us. Wow. Yeah. So okay. it's something i here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is. It's like maybe it's just that specific, you know. Um. Chinese meeting of the minds that just does not seem to be working out for us. But I'm, so. I'm sorry to hear that, though. That's that's um, it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't yeah. Be that way.
0: Thank you. Yeah. I hope that we can all realize that there are bigger issues after this um, and that the time is so limited, right? That we parents people.
1: are notoriously petty, though.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Because you can't speak back to them, you can't do all sorts of things. (laughs) I see things on TV when I'm like,
1: Oh, that's an ass meeting right there. Like, what? Oh, my goodness. I was, yeah, go ahead. I was just saying, I put something recently on my Facebook saying things that I would like to say as a first generation parent to my child that I just don't. And one of them is like, You're so lucky that you have a parent that cares about your self-esteem and that you have an opinion. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, yo, you don't even know. You really don't even know.
0: It's so true. And I guess, I mean, that brings me to the next question, which I think is still related to the question of dreams. And it's a question of inheritance. So in my engagement with your work, that's something that I drew heavily upon, you know, thinking about, what Afro-Chinese heritage means for you, for Maria Magdalena Campos Pons. So yeah, could you speak to if you feel there's any sort of island or archipelagic inheritance that
1: has been passed down to you? Oh, definitely. Um, I think, unfortunately, the thing that has been passed down to me the most has been trauma and the kinds of trauma that we've inherited um, that has become like, unfortunately, a legacy in my part of the family. And, um, you know, a lot of the work that I make now, I think I wanted my son to really understand where he comes from. Um, like, I understand a lot of the issues that have been traumatic to my my parents, particularly my father. Um, so I understand why they respond the way that they do to certain things, like their expectations of their children. But I also feel like in some ways they cannot rid themselves of that trauma. And that becomes like a generational trauma that's passed down. And it's like, at what point does that stop? And I feel that, um, you know, a lot, I grew up in a place that didn't have a lot of Caribbean people. I grew up in Houston. And when I moved to New York, it was sort of reassuring that there were other people there that I didn't have to explain myself to, which is great. Um, and then I started to meet other um I started to make a lot of friends that were from the Caribbean, not necessarily from Jamaica, but we had that bond, you know, like we had that bond of, of being of an Island and all of the things that came with that. And so I want him to know those things, but I want him to know it without the trauma that I had to inherit in a lot of ways. And I want him to inherit the knowledge of, of where he's from and understanding Um And actually, like, allowing him the ability to have the freedom to do and dream in the way that he wants to, as opposed to my specific expectations of him.
0: Yeah, that makes complete sense in the sense of a genealogy. And your son is the next heir. Yeah, I
1: mean, he's completely my legacy. And, you know, I think when artists talk a lot about, like, being concerned of their legacy, they're thinking of their work. But for me, like he is my work, you know, like he, he is the single most amazing thing I've ever made. And everything that I put into my work, you know, I've already put into him. So I want him to, you know, know, know the things that we've gone through and normalize his last name. You know, like I want all of those to seem normal for him and and for him to really understand who he is from his um, his family from this at least this part of his family,
0: right? And I mean, I think I've seen some of your work where you actually feature him in the work. So could yeah. you to that and using photographs of your son and perhaps talk about the specific artworks?
1: Um, that's a, a pretty recent thing. Um, I'm working on some cyanotypes that I had sort of just been playing around with different ideas and um, I was kind of fascinated with the idea of Drexia and um, for anyone that's unfamiliar with it, Drexia was created by a um, a Detroit band, they were sort of like an Afrofuturist group and they called themselves Drexia and the idea was like sort of this sort of like Afrofuturistic um, Atlantis uh, in the water. And the people who populated the kingdom were those who jumped over the um, slave ships or were thrown over. And I was always fascinated with the idea of, um, you know, the the people who were in the water, that they could sort of create their own colony and in some ways their own kingdom where they would be free. And like, what would they look like? What would the, their children look like? Um, was just, I just—I don't know. It was a thought that always stuck into my head, and um, the more I started doing researches, the more I, that's how I found out about Drexia the group, and that's how I found out about um, some of the work that Ellen Gallagher has done on Drexia. Um, and I really was was interested in like using images of children or young um, young kids to. Um, sort of create what they would look like. So they sort of morph into aspects of things that are underwater, like corals um, and, you know, lionfish and things like that. Um, I, I didn't want to be the fish the fish woman who made work about lionfish. So I, I wanted to sort of push the idea um, of what I had started with the lionfish and the cyanotypes and, and push it into, you know, thinking of Drexia and what would that life be like would they be um, our guardians, you know, would their lives be better because they weren't, um, they weren't enslaved in the way that we were. So yeah, it was just sort of a play on that. And um, I, I just felt like, well, he's there. Let me just use him as a model to sort of um, experiment with. And I really liked the way that that first cyanotype test came out. So I'm, I'm trying to create a series um, with very like oversized um, cyanotypes that are maybe like 40 by 60 inches um, and just see how that goes. Like put them all in a room and, and, you know, see what that looks like.
0: That's so lovely because I feel there's, you know, just so much poetry and history in your artwork.
1: Thank you. So- I really try hard. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's just it's so rich and I learned from the examples that you draw on. So related to to this question then, could you speak about um, La Mourne? I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly.
1: Yeah, you are, you are.
0: Thinking about Mauritius, you know, the fact that you were awarded this prestigious grant, the Fulbright, right?
1: Yeah. To
0: go there. Um, yeah, could you talk about how these kinds of historical stories um, play a role in what you're trying to enact in your art because this idea of escape is something that I feel like I'm hearing a lot um, enslavement um, so yeah if you want to riff on any of that
1: sure um, I would like to demystify the Fulbright <laughs> in a lot of ways because i'm I'm always encouraging people to apply for it um, it is you know it has this idea of, of being prestigious but honestly it's 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 not. All that prestigious. And I'm not saying that to sort of like devalue my accomplishments, but like I really do wish that people would apply um, without thinking um, that it's impossible to get. There's definitely strategy into applying for it. So I I highly encourage people to apply. Um, You know, a lot of it is just politics. Unfortunately, it's more about making Americans look good to other countries. Oh. Which, which really played a role in my experience there. Um, so like, as long as you can show cultural exchange in the country that you choose to apply for, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of golden. Um, so yeah, for your students, apply, apply, apply. Um, yeah, for
0: that
1: know. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, it's really just a lot of um, smoke and mirrors, honestly. Um, but my particular interest in Mauritius was, um, and specifically Lamorne, when I applied, I was really interested in, um, I had like, honestly, I've been watching Globe Trekker on PBS, because I'm kind of a nerd. And they were on an island, and I saw somebody with dreadlocks. And I was like, Oh, they must be somewhere in the Caribbean. And then they were in Mauritius. And I was like, What? Where the hell is that? I've never heard of that country before. Um, and sure enough, I looked it up. And uh, the similarities to the Caribbean were so unbelievable, Um, down to the food. um, It was pretty incredible. I mean, Mauritius is a former sugar colony as well. Um, There was a depot there where a lot of the Indian indentured servants came through and were then dispersed into the Caribbean. Mauritius was sort of seen as uh, an experimental site, um, which was kind of horrifying to, to learn while I was there. But I was particularly interested in Lamorne, which is in a village in the southern part of Mauritius that is currently um, like populated by um, Creoles, which would be the equivalent of, of um, descendants of slaves who were Black. Um, they came mostly from um, Eastern Africa, like around Mozambique and um, Madagascar. Wow. wow. Um, and the story of Lamorne in particular is that, uh, there were a lot of Maroons there that had escaped and had established a village on top of Mount Lamorne. And it was a very strategic, um, village because it was very hard to climb and they took up fishing and, and, um, you know, different things like that in order to sustain themselves. And when slavery was abolished, the British had sent troops to, um, quote-unquote, let them know that they were free, a.k.a. arrest some of them um, and re-enslave them. So the people were so frightened that they jumped off um, the cliff. And so um, Lamorne is now like an archaeological site, um, a historical archaeological site, and it's now like a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And um, after that... um, when slavery was abolished, you had to do the seven year apprenticeship. And um, a lot of the former slaves were like, nah, we're not doing that. Like we've had enough of you, we're not doing this. You're on your own white man, I'm sorry. You know, you lost all your free labor, but it's not happening. So they continued to take on um, fishing as their major trade. And um, I find that to be a very revolutionary act. Um, And and it became this trade that was um, passed down from generation to generation. So when you go there, um, you know, you can tell whose family members were former slaves. But now it's sort of taken in a way and sort of um, they've turned it into a slur in a lot of ways, which I find really interesting. Um, And I, I feel like all of the stereotypes that are attributed to to Creoles are very similar to the way that people speak of Black Americans as being like lazy and savage. And I, I thought that was really interesting um, how your act, your revolutionary act could be um, demonized in that way. Um, so, I mean, you know, I, I kind of took a kinship to that and everyone thought we were Creole anyway. Um, oh. we, kind of, we blended in <laughs> nicely. It wasn't until we opened our mouths that people realized we were American.
0: Who are you with?
1: My husband. My husband oh. was. Oh,
0: to go together.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's the other thing, students. If you're married, <laughs> take your spouse with you. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was really interesting, and everyone thought that we were Mauritians, So I think that we had um, we had the privilege of really seeing the way that people would respond. To us. Um, and Mauritius also has a, um, uh, a Chinese um, population that is the exact same Hakka group that has dispersed into the Caribbean as well. And that was so amazing to me because I got to connect with what felt like my heritage, you know, that I was kind of denied in a lot of, a lot of ways. Um, and one of our closest friends now, um, who is Mauritian that we met there, he now moved to the States. So he's two hours away from us. So we make sure to see him, you know, as frequently as possible. And he and I, you know, we constantly discuss um, things related to like Haka culture. And so it was, it was a very, um, it was an amazing experience for me. It was probably like one of the best years of my life. It was definitely hard. It has the same challenges of, of any Island nation where things run very things run on Island time. (laughs) Um, but it was, it was amazing. And like history, I think because of my husband, who is a history major, history has always been something that has, um, it's just a part of, it's a part of all of my work. I can't separate my work from that in any kind of way. And I think a lot of it is because I wanted to initially know more about my family. And now it's become, I want my son to really understand um. I want I want him to understand his place in life. Yeah, it's it's I can't I can't separate that from from the practice. It's just it is what it is.
0: <laughs> so from one island nation to another. Yeah. Um, yeah. Could you say a bit more then about the the work of art or body of works that Lamorne then inspired as you were thinking about this escape? Because it strikes me. You know, what you're phrasing as a revolutionary act is the title of the podcast, Get Free. It's about Uh freedom, in a sense.
1: Yeah, so um, it's funny. Like, I had started making work with sugar when I was in grad school, so, like, around 2007. And I had been making work to sort of, um, like, honor my my grandmother who had passed from um, surgery. She had her second leg amputated from gangrene. Um, and I was, so I was really interested in like my relationship to sugar. So then I started looking at, um, you know, the Creoles relationship to sugar and, um, you know, because their fishing trade is, is sort of now dying out from being, um, having foreign, foreign ships come into their waters. And actually just recently, I'd say in the last month, a Japanese oil tanker spilled oil um, into their waters all through La Morne. Um, it's it's devastating to the island. Um, they, yeah, it, I mean it's it really hurts to see the images because I mean that's where that was my like the base of my research. Um, and Mauritians are incredibly friendly. It's so different than the U.S. Um, it's the safest place I've ever lived in my life. You could walk down the street and someone will talk to you for a half an hour. Um, it's, de- it's like really devastating to see what has happened there now. And, um, you know, aside from that trade now being, um, you know, destroyed because of the oil um, and, and foreigners coming into their waters and, and stealing their fish, you know, the trade is slowly um, disappearing. And that act of revolution is, is um, you know, not only turned on its head to seem, as a sort of like, um, negative thing, but to have your trade taken away from you, your way of sustaining your life, you know, that's, it's heartbreaking. Um, so I, I took, um, I took sugar and fashioned them into bottles. Um, they were, my husband was like chilling the whole time and was fishing a lot with a lot of local merchants and they, um, He was used to using a rod and reel, but they were using bottles to fish with. Um, I recall my father saying that he learned to fish this way as well. And you would wrap the fishing line around the bottle and then cast it into the water and just pull the line up by hand. Um, So that's what I did. I sort of recreated that scenario using um, the sugar to create the bottles and suspended them from the ceiling. So it felt like you were in the water. And over the duration of the exhibition, um, the bottles melt and start to twist and deform and do all these things to sort of mimic the disappearance of of that trade. Um, and I guess in, in a lot of ways, that that act, that ability to use this as a revolutionary act.
0: Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so evocative of, like you said, this kind of view of the water. And I feel like the water... Or the ocean or the sea is a kind of archive, in a sense, for you yeah. and certainly for me and my work. And I'm actually um, beginning a brand new journal called the Journal of Indentureship. So it's the Journal of Indentureship Studies and its Legacies.
1: Interesting.
0: So could you speak a bit about, you know, the question of Mauritius as a question of the Great Experiment and how that connects to the Trinidad Experiment? If we're thinking about indentureship and Chinese laborers, you know, being brought to Trinidad, to Mauritius, but also, yeah, African people being brought to these spaces as well.
1: It's funny because I didn't realize that there was such a kinship to, to between the two islands um, until much later. They actually looked to the Caribbean as a source of inspiration. So the ideal of coolitude that was created or written about in Trinidad, um, they very much identify with, and they have sort of um, have tried to maintain relationships with other academics from Trinidad, which was really fascinating. Um, I don't unfortunately see the same um, the same kind of connections happening within the Chinese and uh, yeah, the Chinese. I would say the Chinese community there. I don't know if it's just a, the smaller number. Um, of, of Chinese Mauritians that are there. Um, but they definitely look specifically to Jamaica um, as a source of inspiration and in being, not being ashamed of um, being descendants of slaves. I thought that was uh, fascinating to me that that there's, um that people carry shame with that because I'm like that, that is not something that you you asked to be. You know, but there is a there's a shaming that tends to happen because people are descendants of of that. And I'm just like, I don't I can't connect to that in any kind of way. Um, So, yeah, that that was really strange. Um, And descendants uh, of indentureship and of enslavement. Um, Yeah. Like there seems to be um, I think because of the population. It's predominantly um, Indian, um, mostly Hindu, but also um, Muslim. And and then the next um, large group is considered the other population, which I thought was also very strange. And that includes Sino Mauritians and um, Creoles. They don't just dis- like, they don't specify who they are. So there's a lot of community separation. Um, they won't tell you that. If you're an outsider, but with when you're in the country, you can see definite prejudices between um, communities. Um, We were, yeah, (laughs) we were very lucky to be able to sort of like navigate our way through it. But, you know, there would be instances, especially my husband, he got it the worst, um, where there would be Indian women that would like cut him in line at the grocery store and just stand in front of him to pay for the (laughs) items. Oh my goodness! <laughs> it was hilarious. Like, uh, I, he just was like shocked and appalled. Um, yeah, it, like I, I remember that. Like, people would stare at him because I think they they thought he was like people would call him Musliman. They thought he was Muslim, and hmm. they would kind of look at him funny because I would be wearing shorts or something like that, and they would think like bad Muslim. Like, why are you letting your wife walk around the island? <laughs> um, wow! So it was very interesting. But then when we spoke and they saw that we were American, then our position changed, you know? So, yeah, it was quite interesting. Um, The indentured um, situation there, I I think in a lot of ways, there seems to be more focus on the Indo indentured um, indentureship that passed through there. And they actually have pretty great records. They have cards that have some photographs of some of the people that passed through Mauritius, and then were dispersed into the Caribbean. Um, but I can't find those things with, um, with the Sino-Mauritians. Uh, um, there's a lack of um, archiving of anything having to do with um, Malagasy uh, descendants or East African descendants that were enslaved. Like it, There is such a heavy focus on the Hindu population that... I feel like a lot of the rest of the um, communities within the country are ignored.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I'm hearing so many linkages between Suriname, Guyana, Trinidad, Jamaica, definitely driving. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And, yeah. It just feels like there are like the conversation around indentureship becomes so segregated and racialized. Whereas our hope with the journal is to focus on it as an institution and to say, there were indentured Africans, there were indentured um, Chinese, because it, it tends to be dominated
1: as being about a specific nation or ethnic group, it seems. And the other thing that like, I don't understand about the shaming aspect of it is that, you know, um, former slaves were not allowed to purchase land the way indentured um, Indians or Chinese were allowed to purchase land in, in other islands. So mm-hmm. to shame someone for not having that opportunity um, and then to, you know, demean them as being um, lazy or savage or whatever. It's, it's such an unfair critique. Um, you know, I, I think indenturedship was essentially slavery. Um, but they got to the difference was that they had the opportunity to acquire land. Um, and that is such a powerful thing. And I think yeah. that... Um, you know, that a lot of people f- forget about that, like what it means to acquire land and, and you know, years later, what that does for you in the sense of like attaining wealth. So it's it's really unfortunate because, um, I, I mean, I know that Trinidad and, and Guyana have like this history of, you know, um, violence between the two communities. And I'm just like, you we were all colonized, though. And you have to look at it in a, in a bigger picture of we all suffered and we all need to find a way to, you know, work together. But, right. you know,
0: yeah. It's like talk about Afro Asia.
1: I mean, yeah.
0: okay. So my final question before I get to the items that you would bring to this, um, island, <laughs> which should be fun, um, is a question on again, poetry. So listening for survival is um, something that you're referencing, right, from Audre Lorde. Yeah. And could you speak then to the question of what it means that, you know, as she poetically says, we were not meant to survive? And how, how does this play a role in how you think about gestation, Black women as midwives, um, any of these questions to do with survival, midwives, inheritance, and a kind of maternal um, care? That is a very
1: big question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. Black women are the most resilient people I've ever met. You know, like there's only so much that I can take, but I am um, constantly amazed at the women who've taken way more than me, have taken like two lifetimes of abuse and can still keep going. Um, one of the most resilient people I've ever met is my mother in law. Damn, that woman has had like a hard ass life. And she keeps going and she does it with such grace. Mm. Uh, I've never met anyone as graceful as she is considering um, the amount of abuse and um, just horrible things that she's experienced as a woman. Um, And she's the sweetest, nicest, most amazing person um, that I've met. And I'm very blessed to have a mother-in-law like that, as opposed to having a mother-in-law that hates my guts for marrying her child. Um, but yeah, I, I really agree with the fact that um, Lord says that, you know, we, we definitely were not meant, we weren't uh, meant to survive any of this. And yet we continue to go on and on. And I think the thing that's amazing about, um, you know, black folks in particular is that we have a way of taking things and sort of turning it on its head, as a way to survive. Um, You know, my interest in midwives is not just that they birthed children, but they also provided abortions. Um, That is another method of survival, whether you want to, you know, look at it that way or not. Um, They didn't want, you know, they provided a service for women who didn't want their children to suffer. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm really fascinated with that right now and have, you know, doing a lot of reading on that. Um, But also they, they were powerful, You know, they could, they had the ability to heal and they had the ability to kill. Um, Right. Yeah. Both things. Yeah. And like a a lot of the um, plantation owners were terrified of them. So rather Mm -hmm. than like really mess with them, they would rent them out. And I I think that that's a very powerful um, position to find yourself in. And, you know, what you do with that is, is, you know, on you. But I I just think that that that's an amazing position and power to have. And um, you know, power doesn't always look like what we think it might look like. And but I think that that's that's amazing. That's amazing that you can do that.
0: Right. And I feel like the ocean kind of has this power too. And you know, I'm looking at a litany for survival. Your artwork. Could you, I guess, say a bit about like your uses of blue and the cyanotype process,
1: and why you chose that title? Um, I, I mean, I love Audre Lorde, um, just like everyone else. And I I had been, um, you know, using one of her other quotes, um, you can't dismantle the master's house using the master's tools. That was like a huge inspiration for a series of work that I did. And I just wanted to read a little bit more about, um, about Lorde. I, I often, I'm like really pessimistic and I see a lot of people throwing up quotes by her and, um, and, uh. My brain is blanking out right now. Um, Baldwin, and I'm like, have you actually oh, read yeah. the work? <laughs> <laughs> just you know, like all these trendy quotes, but I really wanted to take the time to read it, mm-hmm. um, and I just connect with her, and she's also Caribbean, so yay! Um, so with the cyanotypes, I, I'm fascinated with the effort that put into uh, that was put into colonizing. So I I kind of look at cyanotypes in a sense of like blueprints and um, like sort of acknowledging um, that they were used for that, but also also used to document um, um, uh, botanical life. So a lot of the earlier um, cyanotypes were of things like corals and and flowers and um, seaweed, like Anna Atkins did a whole folio of um, seaweed. So that was sort of like the origin of a lot of, of, a lot of the cyanotype pieces. Um, and the thing that I, I picked corals for is that they're um, – I was thinking about coral bleaching, and I was thinking process-wise. Like I learned a lot from the uh, lionfish in, in regards to process and what I could do with um, the chemicals. Like, it's just like an endless amount of play. Like You can use salt to um, create spots within the, the chemicals – Um, that Mm -hmm. almost, it looks, it almost looks like you're in space, which was a comment that I had received a lot from, um, people when they saw the lionfish installations. Um, you can also use, um, water to, you know, create water drops or sprays. Um, so it looks kind of like an ocean spray. You can use, um, hydrogen peroxide. I mean, there's like endless amount of things that you can do with it. Um, and I love yeah, I love that process. Like it's so much fun. Like you can layer the, um, the negatives on top of each other and, and you'll get like all kinds of crazy, um, you know, crazy variations of color. Um, so I, I like to play in that way. Like you can create motion and all kinds of stuff with it. It's just like endless. Um, so I, I also like the idea of, um, corals and thinking about coral bleaching and how our impact of um, sort of destroying the environment, but also thinking a lot about how corals are so um, regenerative and that if you give them the time, they can rebuild um, their own colony. And even within one coral, you have your own colony. And just thinking of like life and trying to rebuild and not wanting to focus so much on, you know, the sadness of um, slavery and colonialism, but this idea of being regenerative and like regrowing and changing and um, being able to thrive. So that's sort of like the, that's where the, the um, inspiration for that series of work came from. So with Litany for Survival, um, you know, I, I created this collage of, various corals and then on top of some of them i've painted sugar on them so for the duration of the exhibition the um, sugar would crystallize and harden and some of it would fall off and some of it would would stay put um and you know i have no idea what's going to happen i kind of just leave it up to chance and i I like that the viewer has to come in um multiple times to see the work to see what exactly is going to happen
0: Yeah, that's something I really love about your work, because it is about regeneration, but it's also about ephemerality, and I just love that that's part of your design. Now it's time for the second part of the Get Free Submarine podcast. In this speculative deep dive, we're going to imagine being stranded on a so-called deserted island in the spirit of an anti-colonial desert island discs. I want us to imagine what objects you would bring to this fantasy island. The radio program Desert Island Discs began in the 1940s on the BBC in the UK as a wartime broadcast and continues on today, where guests consider what culture and art means to them. I ask us not to take as a given that any island is truly deserted or needs to be discovered, Considering the many non-human ecologies and ecosystems, let alone indigenous peoples, that thrive on such islands. So here we go. Five things. Tell me what book you would bring, an essay you would bring, a film, a musical album, and finally, a luxury object of your choosing.
1: Away we go. This was like the hardest thing to answer. (laughs) I know, but I think it's it's fun <laughs> because I was like, book. When do I have time to read with a seven year old
0: um, oh, on your dessert, Well, on your non deserted island,
1: you would have time to read. Um, there are two books that have moved me the most. Uh, one is Edwidge Dandycats Create Dangerously. Um, that was a really powerful book. Um, it's the two books that I'm going to name are the only books that have ever made me cry. Um, okay. that book made me cry. I, and I was reading it on the subway in New York when I was like about to cry. Um, wow. also hunger by Roxanne Gay was, mm. that book was hardcore and was just bravery. I've never read anything so brave in my life. Um, I think those two books um, written by, funny enough, two Haitian women um, are right. some of the most powerful books I've ever <laughs> read in my life. A baby of the Caribbean again. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, Roxane Gay is amazing. Like, I just, ugh. It, that, was, that was very challenging to read. right? Um, but such a good book. I devoured that book in two days. And I, I never get to read like that. Um, but I just could not put it down. It was so good. Um, so yeah, I was going to say Chino Achibe's Things Fall Apart, but that book made, I I wanted to throw the book across the room when I finished it. I was so angry. (laughs) (laughs) This bullshit. I was like, um, but yeah. yeah. Great. Okay. So
0: following along with that, then one essay that you're allowed to have with you on this island.
1: That one I don't know. It looks like it's like hard. Um, oh God, um, essays that stick out in my mind. Anything written by Krista Thompson is fantastic. Yeah, that works. That. A brilliant mind, and I think um, Bell Hooks is eating the other. I think
0: oh, it's, is, is I read it that again
1: recently. Yeah, I, I have to get my book back from my sister-in-law. I let her borrow, and she went to college. Like I want my book back. But um, I think that was a really powerful essay as well.
0: Great. Yeah, I think there would be so much to digest, I guess, pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of, or any of those texts. Um, okay, so the third uh, text, as it were, which film would you bring?
1: To so I say what, film? Yeah, um, what film? It's not a film. Uh, it's. God, what is the name of it? I'm also really immature with my humor. So like there's this show on Netflix. Oh, American Vandal because. Oh, I've seen it. Yeah. Hilarious, (laughs) especially the second season. And I love a good laugh. Um, And the turd burglar was probably the funniest thing I'd ever seen. (laughs) I love that, that series. I'm so mad they canceled it, but I'm, I am that immature that I can laugh at stuff like that.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, we need some humor on this island, right? Yeah. Cool. Um, okay, so next is what album would you bring?
1: God, that's hard to. Uh, damn, that's a hard one. Um, my favorite rapper is Redman, so uh, also for his humor. Wow, well, yes, he's great. Oh. I just uh-huh. saw him on.
0: The Cribs episode. quiz is that man. We're coming to y'all live. Should I give y'all the tour right now? Oh my god,
1: that episode's the best. <laughs> <laughs> we had a box of cash. <laughs> um, yeah, like that. <laughs> I, I love him. i I, was, I I can't. Like he's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna go with that for now. Like I don't. I can't really pick one because I I like. It, it, it depends on my mood. I like different people for different things. Um, that works. So a Redman album. Cool. Yeah. Um,
0: and then luxury object. So you can interpret this. Some people, you know, typically on the BBC program say, oh, a pen and a piece of paper or something to that effect. So interpret luxury object as you wish.
1: My computer so that I could Amazon everything else that I couldn't get. <laughs> and uh, Amazon's the devil, but. Damn, that two-day shipping is, like, hard to beat.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it makes sense in terms of, like, do you find a
1: lot of your work um, is more so involving the digital and computers? Actually, I I hate um, doing anything on the computer. I absolutely hate mm-hmm. it. I have to do things with my hands, but, um, but, you know, I do a lot of my research online, so... You know, it's it's my access to everything. Um, so yeah, I, it, it would. I'm like sort of glued to my computer. I'm always on it. <laughs> cool. So that would be your portal. Yeah.
0: <laughs> nice. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to Get Free the Submarine Podcast. I'm your host, Tally Goff, professor of literary and cultural theory. Don't forget to subscribe if you're enjoying the conversations. As with all things, a team is necessary behind the scenes to produce the culture and art that we enjoy. So I want to give thanks to Get Free podcast producer and cinematic composer, David Gonzalez, for his vision, ear, and sound mixing. The opening and closing track features the musical stylings of Seal pan composer, Justin Lowe. Till next time, we have a lot of exciting guests lined up who will talk about the books, films, art and music that means the most to them.